What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James, and today we're going to do an episode on The Wolf of Wall Street in the Big Short. We felt we had to do a special episode on Wall Street movies since we're currently sending AMC and GME to the moon, baby. Let's go. <laughs> this phenomenon in the stock market in the last week forced us to make this kind of episode. We're not financial experts. We know close to nothing about stocks and trading. Uh, we invest a little bit, but we, I'm not, a, yeah. A little, a little bit, a I little bit here and there. I look at it twice a month. That's but it. that being said, AMC and Jamie to the moon, baby. Let's go. <laughs> it's amazing because I don't think uh, business or the economy or anything financial has become such a pop culture phenomenon Me ever. Either. Yeah. And I think it's an amazing moment where so many young people are just like trying to figure out what's going on. They're very curious and it's become like the new thing of the moment. And it's something finance and and Wall Street investing are things that can be very vital to an, you as an adult, but we don't learn about any of this when we're young. Never learn. No, it. Don't learn about it in school, like taking out loans, what a mortgage is, what it's like to invest, like any of these skills or, or tools that we could use or, or that corporations can, corporations can use against us. Uh, and so I think it's important for young people to ed educate themselves. And I think the phenomenon of the last week in the stock market is is going to have pros and cons, obviously. But one of the main benefits I think will happen is a lot of young people and young millennials and generation Gen Z people are going to understand or, or learn what investing is and, and try to learn more about it and try to prepare for their futures more because it is really important. Like you said, we don't learn about any of this. And I think these two movies are a testament to how the people who are in th this business on Wall Street, they don't want you to know what's going on there. They, yeah. they try to keep it a secret because it, it's <laughs> there's a ton of money there. It's a sea of, of cash. It's it, like McConaughey says in Wolf of Wall Street. It's that Fugazi, Fugazi. It doesn't exist. And yeah. they're, everyone's in that industry to make money off of us. And the, these movies that we're going to talk about show you that they want to keep it a secret. Uh, in Wolf of Wall Street, we obviously get more of a, a fantastical, like fun roller coaster ride of a story. Whereas in The Big Short, we see the repercussions really of what's going to happen and what what happened in 2008 with that crisis. Yeah, Wolf is about the lifestyle of someone in that world, and then uh, The Big Short is uh, the fallout and repercussions of the damage that can be done yeah, in so the I think industry. These movies go so well together because— And we didn't do Wall Street on purpose. Yeah, we I don't to think do a lot of people two. have seen Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, we, and, Young people. Yeah, the, the tones of these movies go so well together because— they're so different despite being about very similar topics. And exactly. We'll, we'll get more into that. And they both got great filmmakers. And um, I, I couldn't be more excited to talk about these movies because I love them both. They both blend a lot of humor uh, and drama into these films. And they're both a great time. But real quick, if you want to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the best thing you can do is go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. There are links everywhere. You can find it on our profiles. Become a patron of the show. You can do a $2, $5, $10 investment in basically our <laughs> stock. And we, we use the money we get from Patreon to invest in our show. We're not like spending the money on ourselves. We're putting everything into the show. Like if you watch our show online on YouTube, you see every month or so that our set gets better. Uh, we have new microphones. We're getting new lights and we're decorating and we're using everything we get from Patreon to invest in this business. So we definitely need help from all of you fans and listeners. And we appreciate everyone who's already on our Patreon. Even the two, even the $2 tier, that's, that's a ton of money for us in the long haul. 
and think of it we like you said we approach the show it's like a stock to us so we're trying yeah. to invest in it and make it as good as possible mm-hmm. and also you get perks like behind the scenes views of upcoming episodes some videos uh top tier patrons get personalized videos sent to them and shout outs on the podcast the five dollar patron you get a video sent to you so there's a lot of cool perks that we're trying to do for all you people and if you're already on patreon thank you so much first of every week first week of every month you get the monthly shout out but again patreon if you want to support us I think the biggest difference between The Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short, um, one's a comedy and one's more of a tragedy with some comedy elements to it and some funny lines. And you like The Wolf of Wall Street captures the that that mood and like that fraternity of this insane brokerage firm. And whenever the movie's about to explain stocks or anything uh, relating to finance, they basically just say, "You know what? Screw that. Who cares? It doesn't matter anyways. We're gonna here's Leo DiCaprio holding a monkey." Whereas with The Big Short, Adam McKay really wants the audience to try to understand as much as they can what's going on because of what happened in 2008. And he does this with comedy, but also with the elements of like Selena Gomez and and Anthony Bourdain and Margot Margot Robbie um, in their scenes trying to explain to you the the nuances of the situation. Yeah, he's he's really smart where he... he dumbs it down and, and tells us what's happening in layman's terms, but he also has famous celebrities do it for us to keep us more engaged because obviously that's watching Margot Robbie in a bathtub, you're going to listen to whatever she says. And also they do things like that Jenga piece scene with um, Ryan Gosling to help explain um, the different um, mortgages that were involved in the collapse. And then just like Wolf of Wall Street, the big short used, breaks the fourth wall a lot. Um, in order to get our attention, it engages the audience and makes us pay attention more because we're not just watching the actors interact with each other. The act, once the actors interact with us, it makes us want to really pay attention. And to reiterate, The Wolf of Wall Street is about the lifestyle. It's really just about Jordan Belfort. We're following his character, the whole movie, his ups, his downs, the entire the, the entire film. And it's this wild ride of, of drugs and money and, and uh, illegal activity. Whereas the big short, we, we really get to see a sense of these characters because I think what Adam McKay does so well is he humanizes these hedge fund managers because a lot of the times you think of a hedge fund manager and you think it's just some greedy, pocket-hungry guy trying to steal your money. Whereas, you know, we're talking about the characters that Christian Bale plays, Steve Carell plays. These guys, you know, they're just trying to make an honest living, trying to make as much money as they can. That's their job. And you can see the turmoil that they're going through because they know what's about to happen and they're betting for it to happen. And they profit immensely from it, as well as understanding that a lot of people just lost their jobs, just lost their homes, just lost all their savings, despite the fact that they're making a ton of money off of it. Yeah, and so you can say that what they were, what they did was kind of villainous in a way, but they bet against, they bet on this because they knew it was gonna happen. So they're like, okay, the ship's going down. We might as well get one of those lifeboats while we're here and try to make something out of it because it's not like we can stop it from happening. And it was just fascinating because the big short revealed that uh, a lot of, a lot of people had no idea this was going to happen. Only very few people knew. And the, those few people, as we've seen in this film, when they tried to tell others in the industry about it, they were ostracized and they were laughed out of their rooms. And they were told that they were crazy and completely wrong, where obviously nefarious behavior led to the collapse. But we thought that everyone, I kind of assumed like all these guys knew about this and let it happen. But it was just fascinating to see that so many had no idea it was going to happen. Yeah, I think when Adam McKay takes you basically to like ground zero when they're in Miami and they're talking to those uh, 
those those bankers who give out those loans and they're so they're so clueless about what they're doing they're just giving loans away like hotcakes and they don't understand what they're contributing to this giant collapse that's about to happen and you can just imagine that there's thousands and thousands of people just like them that are giving out all these loans to anyone who wants one and they don't know that they're going to fail and they're making tons of money off it in the meantime yeah. and they don't realize what's going to happen yeah i can explain real quick exactly what happened with the collapse which the big short shows and that's an example of what happened essentially was banks began issuing mortgages to americans uh, many of which were very risky loans because the people who applied for these loans they had poor credit or had like low annual salaries and they basically had a, a very poor chance of being able to pay off the loan there was a good there was a likelihood they were going to default on their loan but the banks um, eliminated their risk in issuing these loans by selling these loans to tranches and on top of that they received big commissions every time they issued a loan to someone and so they took all these bad bank mortgages and sold them to tranches and these tranches are basically um, piles and compilations of uh, bad risky loans that are are very that are most likely going to default and so the tranches then created bonds out of these loans and a bond is a hundred percent money cold hard cash It'll never depreciate in value and can always pay out, and it gains in value over time. There's no way a bond can ever default or lose its value, so it's a sure thing. And so once these bonds were created out of these horrible mortgage loans, the bonds were then sold to both investors, like people who invest, and both the banks. And so the banks bought as many of these bonds as they possibly could because the bonds, like I said, are cash. They're not gonna. They're never gonna default or lose or lose value. So the bonds doubled their commission by making a commission on the poor mortgages, the risky mortgages, and then buying the bonds that were made out of these risky mortgages. And so the banks doubled their earnings and took no risk at all. And over time, this bubble grew and grew and grew. And as the default rate rose in America, it rose from one percent, which is pretty safe and a balanced uh, default rate on loans. It rose to eight percent. A default rate of eight percent in America, and that is what caused the bubble to essentially collapse and basically destroy the economy. Thanks for putting that into layman terms for us all to kind of understand, Anthony. No problem. That was really nice of you. I tried. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
<laughs> this episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 15% off and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 15% off and free shipping. Manscaped has been amazing. They keep sending us stuff that we got closets full of all their all their shirts and, and deodorizers and colognes and the lawnmower groomer is amazing. It's got a, a light on it. It's waterproof, 8,000 RPM buzzer clippers. These are the, the best clippers I've ever used in my life. Guys, you got to get on manscaped.com. Get their products, get their groomers. Fellas, ladies, for the men in your life, get them gifts from manscaped.com. The best products, I guarantee it. We love everything they send us. I stand by it. I'll take it to my grave. I'll take the lawnmower to my grave. Coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 15% off and free shipping. And so Adam McKay crafted this brilliant movie, which detailed what happened in the collapse in a digestible way for mainstream audiences. Because so many people, you don't understand what's happening in Wall Street and with all these loans and stuff. It's very confusing. So he articulated it really well with this movie. First up, we have The Wolf of Wall Street, which was released in 2013. Written by Terrence Winter, based on the book by Jordan Belfort, directed by Martin Scorsese. Based on the true story of Jordan Belfort, from his rise to a wealthy stockbroker, living the high life, to his fall involving crime, corruption, and the federal government. This film, I think, is a spiritual sibling to Goodfellas. It has a lot of similarities in both the character storyline and all, as well as how Scorsese tells the story and his use of narration especially in this film reminds you a lot of goodfellas like henry hill uh breaking the fourth wall a lot like henry hill uh, addressing the audience and then uh the use of uh freeze frames often Scorsese says he has always used freeze frames but in goodfellas and in this film i think is the most heavy use of freeze frames so i think that he brought that energy he had when he made goodfellas and put it into this film because i feel like it has that same energy same humor uh the same stakes and the same uh, epic storyline that that film has. Yeah, and b both based on true stories, based on books and memoirs of Henry Hill and Jordan Belfort. And yeah, I definitely get that too. And also, th this movie, it's so f it's so fun and wild and insane. And I remember when I was like, I don't know, like 13 years old, and I read the Wolf of Wall Street article in like one of our older brother's Maxim magazines, and I was like, I had no idea what the stock market was or how it worked or, or what was going on. But I just remember reading these crazy stories about this Wolf of Wall Street firm on Wall Street and it, it's nuts and then when you see finally see the movie come out and I couldn't believe the things I was seeing because Jordan Belfort says that despite all the debauchery on camera and what's going on he says his life was even crazier and what happened was even more nuts and they, they couldn't even film what really took place and so this is a crazy toned down version of what this this firm was like it was basically a fraternity but like if you think about it this probably never existed an entity of the magnitude of Stratton Oakmont and what it was like in its prime and its heyday because, yeah, there have been debauchery and fraternity situations and all this, but you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of cash flowing through this tiny community and environment. You can just imagine what it was like in its heyday. That's amazing that you that you pointed out that the film is toned down yeah. for what the real story is, which is unbelievable because this movie was banned in five countries because of its graphic content. So that's just insane i can only imagine what that guy's life was like and a lot of people with this movie they kind of have the uh, people, critics of this movie believe that scorsese is glorifying the behavior of these characters and the behavior of jordan belfort but that's not at all what he's doing what he's doing is he's telling the story and in order to tell a story you have to tell the highs and the lows and the, there's a lot of highs in this movie uh, and 
the characters are doing horrible things and also having a lot of fun. And as audience members, we're having fun with them because we're on, along on the we're along on the ride with them. But then also, Scorsese is completely honest, not with that, not with just the highest, but with the lowest because Jordan F- Belfort falls real low in this movie uh, by the third act of the film. So it's not glorifying, but for for Scorsese, the only way to tell the story is to tell it honestly. And so to be honest, you have to tell them both the highest and the lowest of the character. Yeah, it's a story. It's not like Martin Scorsese saying, like, everyone should do this or just because you like Wolf of Wall Street. I've heard so, so many people criticize just because you like the movie, it means you you want what happened to go on. And it's like if you like a serial killer movie, doesn't mean you like when people get murdered. Yeah, we all know when you watch this movie and you're watching Jordan Belfort, this character, you understand this is a loathsome character. He's a monster. He he has all the worst traits you can think of in a person, but amplified to 100. He's, comp- he's morally corrupt bankrupt and, and ethically um he's wildly selfish he's overly arrogant he'll do anything to make money and we spend pretty much the entire film with this guy watching his life and in his storyline and we've never really seen too much interaction with his children just a couple quick scenes um we don't really see anything positive going on in his life it's always jordan doing illegal or obscene activities or getting messed up yeah and and the thing is he ended up costing his investors $200 million. So he cost a lot of people a ton of money. He destroyed lives and he went to prison for four and he got sentenced for four years and ultimately served 22 months in prison. But like this guy did so many horrible things and it's not glorifying it at all. We're just, it's just a story, like you said. And yeah, he didn't serve that long of a prison sentence, but he also, in order to get that short term, he, he gave up all of his friends. So he destroyed the lives of all of his friends that he was very close with and worked with. So I'm sure he he re- he regrets having to do that as well, and I'm sure that weighs heavy on him. And so it ended up that things did not work out for him, even though he didn't have a long prison term. And what's nuts and what we, we learn when we hear about all these corrupt Wall Street people is even though they go to prison and they sh- serve those short sentences and their, their rich prisons playing tennis, they still make out on the other end. I mean, Jordan Belfort right now, this guy has a highly successful podcast. He's been doing public speaking events who knows how much money he gets paid for those so the guys it's not like yeah he went through tough time um i'm pretty sure he's sober now too but like the guy is still a very wealthy multi-millionaire on top of the world in a way obviously not like he was at in charge of his own brokerage firm hmm. but the guy is still caking and it shows that like a lot of these wall street guys it, it they just get basically a slap on the wrist yeah and the thing with him i'm not surprised he became successful again because he's a natural salesman mm-hmm. you know what i mean like scorsese so such a genius filmmaker and storyteller and uh, i would say the best shot in the entire film is the last shot when jordan is doing his uh presentation to that crowd um and he's asking person after person to try and sell them the pen and what scorsese does is after jordan goes to a few people in the front row he takes the camera away from the attention of DiCaprio, and then he he pans the camera on a crane, and he just puts it on the audience. And you can see the faces of these rows of people, and they are just focused entirely on with attention on what Jordan is saying because that translates the entire, I think, theme of the film, and it's the, the, the desire to be wealthy, the, desi- the desire to have money. Mm-hmm. So many people have it, and that's essentially what, the, what people in Wall Street are driven by and what many people are driven by and and this and these people in this audience they're so fascinated and enthralled by this person because he achieved so much success and everyone wants success in some way and so i think that it's the 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 perfect shot for the movie right there yeah it shows love, scorsese's yeah. brilliance yeah and although this guy went to prison and he's a horrible drug addict and recovering 
these people still want to be just like him. You see that in their eyes. They're like, I wish I was Jordan Belfort. Yeah, just they have watching that hunger him, in their watching eyes. Watching him try to sell that pen with people. Yeah. And the thing is, Jordan Belfort, the character, when, when we're getting the, uh, the fourth wall breaks, when Leo's directly talking to the camera, we, we learn about his ridiculous drug habits and how he, he's constantly taking drugs all day, starting in the morning when he wakes up. And then he's talking about his favorite drug, and you think it's going to be cocaine because my favorite drug, this is the one that gets me the most high. And he's breaking up cocaine. He's like, it's not that. It's money. And this guy will do anything to get money, and he gets the ultimate high from cash, which is saying a lot because the guy does morphine too. So he's a crazy drug addict, but drugs don't even do it for him enough. He needs the money is the biggest drug to him. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And, and the drug use in this movie is just so much fun and ridiculous. And Don't do drugs, but Don't do drugs, insane. but... The Scorsese portrays it in such a crazy way. You've never seen it done like this before. And I think, uh, like, my favorite scene is when he's high on quaaludes after he took too many because of the delayed response from oh them. Oh, my God. And then he has he crawls across the uh, the parking lot, and he opens the Lamborghini door with his foot, which is it's so much fun. It's a great bit of physical comedy. And apparently DiCaprio improvised the scene completely, and he could only do one take because he actually injured his back doing it. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your movie posters online today. Don't go on Amazon. I know it's free shipping, but the quality is not very good. MoviePosters.com has the highest quality posters. Their printing is amazing. All the posters on our set, if you're watching on YouTube, they're fantastic. They sent them to us for free. We love this company. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, RAIDERS15 to get 15% off from MoviePosters.com. I had no idea how talented of a physical actor Leo DiCaprio was. Like, obviously, he does a lot of physical acting in The Aviator. The Revenant. In uh, The Revenant, but like... This scene, this is before The Revenant, though. Yeah. The first time I saw this, I was like, holy crap, Leo is an amazing physical actor because this, this scene's insane. And there's so many drug scenes, obviously, but like the cerebral palsy phase that he that he enters in and then just trying to drag to the car and everything, it's, it's absolutely beyond me how Leo DiCaprio didn't win an Oscar for this role because I think Leo, at this point in his career, like since like maybe 2010, since like after Inception, he, com he completely commits to his roles immensely on like a Daniel Day-Lewis level almost where he only picks like a role a year really. He's only doing like one movie a year at this point in his career. And I think it's because he puts so much into the role. Not saying that he does method acting like Daniel Day-Lewis, but I think he puts so much energy and so much of his time into these characters and these roles to make them as good as possible. Yeah, you're right. He's not a method actor, but you can't you can't deny the, the amount of work he must put into it. And especially Wolf of Wall Street, there is an insane amount of dialogue in this movie. An insane amount of dialogue. A lot of it which was ad-lib and improvised, which is again why it has that same energy you're talking about with Goodfellas because that's why it's so realistic and the and the dialogue's so fun and entertaining. But Leo is has so many lines. I, I can only imagine how many lines he has and he's screaming, he's high energy all the time and he's also acting like he's he's drugged out all the time. So intense physical role it's incredible and he happily put himself into like embarrassing situations like that candle scene and stuff like that yeah, he's just naked like in so many like scenes. ridiculous situations and so like his commitment to the craft is amazing and i think the reason why he didn't win for this film is because of the the raunchiness of it and just the nature of it i think so too. you know yeah. what i mean i think academy voters were like okay he's amazing in this movie but i mean this is ridiculous so i think that's why he didn't win and then jonah hill is in this movie and he's he's phenomenal in this role as donnie um, he may be more morally corrupt than Jordan Belfort is, Donnie, because he, he takes what Jordan does and like somehow 
puts it to another level and he's still addicted to drugs and, he, and after Jordan's clean tell, saying how much he loves it and Jonah Hill is exceptional in this movie and he took the SAG minimum of $60,000 to work with Martin Scorsese in this role and I know a lot of people think that like you're underappreciating Jonah Hill as an actor but you gotta, you gotta remember when you have Leonardo DiCaprio on a movie the guy's making 25 mil and then Think of a movie set or or movie as like a, a you have a budget. It's like a, a sports team. You can only pay this guy so much if you're paying this guy that much. So it's not a slight on Jonah Hill. I know a lot of people kind of interpret it that way. It's just Jonah Hill accepted that willingly to work with Martin Scorsese. So they both get something out of it. Yeah, and the movie's getting made because DiCaprio's in it. Yeah, that's the power of his name. It gets movies made because of the success all of his movies have had. Except for The Beach, every movie has been a gigantic success. This guy's movies don't fail. He even The Revenant made over two hundred million dollars. It's insane. It's not making that without Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. And, exactly. it, and Leo yeah. is a commodity, but Jonah Hill, yeah, he was in Moneyball, which was very good, and he got an Oscar nomination for it, but that doesn't mean he can start demanding $10 million for a movie. Yeah, because in Moneyball, he's very good, but he's still very reserved in that film. He had, he had never showcased like great, incredible character acting before. Uh, and so this film, I think, was him auditioning to the world himself as a great actor. Exactly. And even though he didn't get paid a lot... He became a leading actor after this. Yeah. Now he leads movies. Before he was always a supporting character or one of one of a pair, and now he's a lead. You know what I mean? So that's what happens when you get a movie like this. Again, it's it wasn't his first nomination for acting, but it was a, a high profile role, and I think that his career benefited in the long term because of this movie. Yeah, and I mean, who wouldn't want to work with Martin Scorsese? And I'm sure he would have worked for free if he could have. And that's just, I think that's just a humble move by Jonah Hill in understanding what a role like this could propel your career because it obviously paid off for him. And now he's, like you said, a leading man in a ton of movies. Yeah, and he was so insistent on getting the role that uh, initially because he was he was a famous person and he was Oscar nominated. So people, like Scorsese knew he could act. And uh, he Scorsese wanted to have a meeting with him to discuss the role. Um, because oftentimes, like, stars, they don't audition anymore. Once they get to a certain level, they don't have to audition. And they'll just have meetings with producers and filmmakers. And then they'll be like, okay, let's see how this works out. I, I think you can do a good job with this. Like, Chris Nolan didn't audition McConaughey for Interstellar. You know what I mean? They just have a meeting. And, and Jonah Hill um, requested that instead of doing a meeting, he wanted to audition for the role in front of Scorsese by reading scenes for him. And so you could tell the commitment that Hill had to... Not just getting the role because he was a famous actor, but getting the role because he deserved it and earned it. And you can see that so much in his performance. And uh, my favorite part of his performance is his voice, his accent. Yeah. And the accent was something he actually kept secret. He didn't tell Scorsese or DiCaprio or the producers that he was doing this funny accent. And he was actually kind of worried how everyone re would react to the accent. And the first scene he shot was um, with Spike Jones in the in the in the acting in the scene as well. And he goes to Spike Jones before filming. He's like, "Hey, I have this accent. Can I test it out on you and see if you see if it's good?" And so he tried the Donnie accent out on Spike Jones, and Spike Jones was like, "That's great. You have to do it for sure." And so um, Jonah Hill did the accent in his first take, and Scorsese loved it. And he does a he does a lot of interesting scenes in this movie too, like the fishbowl scene, and he wanted he wanted to actually ingest the fish the goldfish for real and eat it. Because he wanted every part of this movie to be real, obviously, of course, with outside outside of doing the drugs. But of course, you don't want to, you know, injure an animal on set for just a movie. So obviously, Peter's there on set, and they they had a, a two goldfish Peter consultants, I believe. Uh, they had goldfish um, handler, animal trainers, animal handlers. Yeah. <laughs> so they had goldfish handlers on set during the goldfish scene. So Jonah Hill could only keep the goldfish in his mouth for a few three for like three seconds, three seconds at a time. Then they had to spit it out each time. So they couldn't actually do that. 
And he also got punched by John Barenthal for real in that scene on, on the roof where him and they're screaming at each other. And he actually, Scorsese told John to like actually hit Jonah Hill. Like, well, let's do a scene where he actually hit him. And Jonah Hill said he was like shaking in his boots ready for the scene to go. And then did it. And he said it was his favorite scene to shoot. It actually broke his teeth. The, the fake teeth he was wearing, they broke in half from the punch. And, and Scorsese... Uh, immediately set up the next shot of him falling on the ground as soon as possible because he wanted to capture his his cheeks swelling up perfectly <laughs> and not let it go down at all. Yeah, and Jonah Hill also had an audible lisp from using wearing those fake teeth to play Donnie to get rid of it. He'd spent hours on the phone calling random businesses and talking with them just to get rid of it and to learn to talk without it. And the thing with Scorsese is uh, he's made some of the greatest films of all time, and he is uh, one of the most respected, if not the most respected, American director of all time. But uh, I think it would surprise a lot of people to know that he allows a lot of improvisation in all of his films, and he always has. And he thinks that uh, if, when you have a great actor performing for you, they can bring as much to the table as you because they're great artists and they've thought about the character more than the filmmaker has. You know what I mean? And so he encourages improvisation. And I think the, the my favorite case of improvisation in, his, in this film is Matthew McConaughey's scene when he has that lunch with, uh, with Jordan Belfort in the opening of the film. And they start doing that chest beating scene. So that is uh, a completely improvised addition to the scene. And what happened was that chest beating thing is a, it's a vocal warm up that McConaughey does before he acts in all of his scenes for any movie. It like gets his voice range correct and and um, it calms him down. It's just an exercise he always does, um, re- repeats before every scene. And before they were shooting and the, and the shot was set up. DiCaprio saw McConaughey doing this chest beating thing and he thought it was really interesting and, and could work in the scene and so he suggested it to Scorsese and uh, Scorsese was like yeah throw it in the scene and see what happens and so uh, they included it into the scene had a lot of fun with it and improvised with it and it is probably one of my favorite parts of the entire movie yeah you can just tell watching so many of these scenes that a ton of it is improvised or ad-libbed and i think the script is so great because it balances the complexity of the stock market and what happened with these wild stories and incredible humor and specifically that scene where where donnie is telling jordan at dinner about marrying his cousin (laughs) it's absolutely hysterical it's like it's like a two and a half minute scene it has nothing to do with the story has nothing to do with the plot of the movie but it really gets you to know these characters and, and like it's weird you like these characters despite all the the debauchery they're doing and all the illegal activity and, and basically stealing from people and another example is when brad is lifting weights in the backyard <laughs> and he's telling the other the teenagers to tell their sisters he says hi it's it's hysterical stuff that again it doesn't move the plot forward but we get to know the characters better and mom we, we getting chicken for dinner or what we got chicken tonight mom <laughs> <laughs> And in terms of uh, the filmmaking itself, I think, like I said, he Scorsese put so much energy into the filmmaking, um, and also he shot half digital, half, half film with this with this movie. So anything that's set in like the offices or in daylight, uh, that's shot in film, and all of the night sequences are shot digitally, and you can actually see like the the frame, uh, the framing smooths a little bit, the uh, the the twenty four uh, frames per second. You can kind of see how it it smooths a little bit compared to. The, the actual 24 frames per second on film. And on top of that, uh, a lot of this movie was shot with green screens, like gigantic green screen scenes that you wouldn't be able to tell um, in order to save money to produce this. And so uh, some of my favorite shots that are, are completely CGI-created shots or, or filmed in front of big green screens are uh, Jordan's beachside home is made through CGI. Uh, all of the yacht sequences are, are shot in studio with green screens. Uh, the docks are shot in front of a green screen. 
the tennis courts at the prison at the end, that shot was made through CGI. Uh, the lion in the office in the opening of the film, that was shot with green screen. And the wedding on the beach, it was all CGI. And then uh, pretty much every window in the offices, that's all green screen. They just digitally put in background. So uh, I think this is the most... Uh, aside from Hugo, the most CGI that Scorsese's put into a movie. And Shutter Island. There's a lot of green screen and CGI in Shutter Island. Yeah. And also, this movie is the first film, and I think the only film that Martin Scorsese has made that has a shot used with an iPhone to capture. And so, I think they were filming the the airplane scene after uh, Jordan Belfort gets The sex tied. on the plane? Yeah, or... gets, yeah, when he's humping the, the yeah, flight yeah, attendant. Yeah. And so, they needed a pickup shot of the flight attendant light and it was like i think the end of the day and they didn't have enough time or money to to set up their rig that they needed to in the cameras to get it, to get the shot real quick and so they just one of the the producers or someone on set just got video with their iphone and then scorsese saw he's like yeah that's fine we can use that that's fine so yeah he knows he doesn't doesn't have to he doesn't have to be perfect uh he's not like david fincher in that way where it's like it's going to be there for a second and it's just for it's just a quick cut so as long as the audience sees what it is it's it's fine it's good enough and no one will know yeah no one will know and this, I think this movie has the most sex in any other Scorsese movie by far. Like, there's so much sex in this movie, it's crazy. And he had to cut it down a lot of nudity and graphic scenes because it got a nine, it got an NC-17 rating at first. And I, when we're talking about a movie that has like a giant orgy on an airplane, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. The stuff in this multiple, movie. there are multiple, multiple orgies, orgies in this movie. Yeah, it's it's so funny. The, the gay orgy the gay when they come <laughs> back to the apartment and they're sweet. It's hysterical. Their butler's like, oh, he's, he's acting surprised. It's like, Wednesday what are already? you doing? <laughs> <laughs> this movie, it's hysterical. And a cool fact about this, of Wolf of Wall Street is there are multiple directors in acting roles in this movie. Obviously, Rob Reiner, who plays Jordan Belfort's father. And then Spike Jones plays the the, the penny stock manager at that, that tiny firm that Jordan goes to work for. And obviously, Spike Jones is known for her. He's the guy who filmed all the jackass and directed those movies and everything. Mm-hmm. And then John Favreau, we all know. Played um, the lawyer. And then Jonah Hill is also a director now. So there's there's four pretty prominent directors in this movie yeah. as actors. And uh, Rob Reiner, he's old friends with Scorsese, but he made Stand By Me and he's done a couple other Stephen King movies. So a, a great filmmaker as well. And he's he's so funny, like when he changes accents when he's on the phone. Yeah, <laughs> they call him they call him the equalizer. <laughs> and this movie, it's long. It's long. It's as hell. two and a half hours, I think, a little more actually. But it flies by because it's endlessly entertaining. And the thing with Scorsese is, it's very much like Goodfellas, and you can compare it to The Irishman as well. Where this this movie, these three movies, there are so many scenes. There's so many freaking scenes in those three movies, Goodfellas, Irishman, and, and Wolf of Wall Street. Scorsese is able to shoot so quickly. I, it's unbelievable if you've seen behind the scenes. Like, they're shooting three, four, five scenes in a single day. Uh, I, I don't know how many scenes are in this movie. It's got to be over 70 scenes. And it's just amazing how much coverage he can get. And because he's so, he's not like Kubrick or, or Fincher where it has to be perfect. We're doing take after take after take. Like, once he feels it's right, he's like, okay, good. Let's cut. Let's move on. Let's get the next shot. And so by injecting so many scenes into a movie that's this long, it doesn't feel that long. Yeah, and also each scene pretty much in a lot of these shots, they're they're packed with information. And I think one of my favorite examples of this is the scene where Jordan's in Switzerland with the Swiss banker. And the way they shot this is behind the Swiss banker is this fish tank, a small fish tank, and there's a bunch of fish swimming around. And then behind Jordan in the background, he's like sitting like what he look, thinks and feels like, a, obviously he feels like a king on a throne, and behind him is a giant lake or a giant pond. And Jordan thinks that he's a big fish 
in a small pond, but really to the Swiss banker, Jordan is a, a small fish in a big pond with all these other fish. So he's not as important as he thinks. And I think there's shots like this that Marinska says he just really sh- symbolically shows you the characters and what their their personalities are really like. And it's really smart and clever. And also like the editing in this film is kind of like all over the place, especially to, to make you feel like you're in Jordan's shoes and mentality because he's always high on drugs or, or, or messed up or something. And he does amazing cuts like when he shows Naomi the yacht he bought her. Scorsese just cuts for 30 seconds like this cheesy like infomercial advertisement of the of the interior of the yacht like an ad, an ad of it and it's just and he also does like that cheesy advertisement for the company in the opening of the film like he injects so much information in a fun and unique way with the editing it, it keeps you like entertained and, and and invested in the film as it's going along. In the Stratton Oakmont, the firm itself, it feels like a character in the movie because because of how unique and wild and exciting and and crazy it is. And all these men and women who be, become a part of this, it's like a living organism or community of excess and illegality. And there's so many scenes where the firm's acting like, you watch it, they're acting like a group of apes or like yeah. a group of animals mm-hmm. grunting and screaming and fighting and having sex. And it's just like, it seems like, humanity goes backwards in time in mm-hmm. evolution when they're at, in, at this firm in a way. It's, it's just crazy interesting to watch. Yeah, it's so much fun. And then, um, obviously, this was Margot Robbie's big breakout movie. So good in this movie. Yeah, she's fantastic. And after this movie, she just, like, exploded with, like, five movies back to back to back. And her, I think her biggest scene is probably the seduction scene where she seduces Jordan Belfort. And it's funny because he's trying to, he, in his head, you hear his, his inner monologue. And he's always like, she's like, how do I get into her apartment? And, and like, then how do I stay here? And he's, and she's just like making it happen without him doing anything. And there's this famous reveal where she, she, she enters her living room and she's nude. Originally Scorsese offered to let Margot Robbie perform the scene with a robe on and not be fully nude because he didn't want her to feel uncomfortable. Or objectified, but Margot Robbie, being being the smart and talented actor she is, and understanding her character, she she insisted on doing the scene nude because she felt that her character, the only the only money she the only uh, money she has in the world is her body, and she uses that as her leverage in these situations. So she has to be nude in the situation, and so I think kudos to Margot Robbie for like understanding her character that much and really sticking to her guns and having the, the like the courage to be able to do that nude even though she was asked not to. And the film obviously we all know ends with Jordan Belfort being uh arrested and indicted and um going to jail. And it gets very intense where he he tries to like kidnap his daughter basically and he crashes the car and it's very dark. He has a a very dark downfall in this movie. It takes a turn. But again, it it ends with him doing his speeches and, and his uh, presentations, and you, 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 we learn now, if you look the guy up, the guy's pr- very wealthy again. So these these stock market guys, these Wall Street guys, they just kind of really they just get a slap on the wrist. They go to a fancy prison for a few years, and they pay some fines, and they're, they're good to go. Even John Favreau, the lawyer, is like, oh, you just pay some fines with the SEC, and that'll be it, really, and you'll be fine. But it's, it's nuts how they get away with it. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio explained to Ellen DeGeneres that during the Quaalude sequence where Donnie's choking, it took them 70 takes just to get the ham to stick to his face, and they achieved it by flicking the ham off a spoon and using KY ju- and using KY jelly in order to make it sticky enough. It's amazing when you hear something like that because if you look at DiCaprio's face, he is so in the scene, into it, 
And imagine having to do that 70 times with it just not working. And on top of that, you're, they're trying to stick ham to your face. So and just KY jelly flying into your it's eye. It's just amazing when you, when you hear that and you can see his commitment to the scene. It's just unbelievable. This guy deserves everything he gets. On a routine set visit, Steven Spielberg spent a day on set watching the shoot of the Steve Madden speech. Marska says he claims that Spielberg essentially co-directed the scene, giving advice to actors and suggesting camera angles. Steve Madden. Steve Madden. Steve Madden. Steve. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey can be seen gaining weight in this movie because he had just come off of filming Dallas Buyers Club, in which he lost 47 pounds for. And so once he started filming this movie, he began eating normally again. And you can tell tell in his few short scenes that his weight is getting uh, is fluctuating. Yeah, he's definitely super thin in the first scenes. Yeah. yeah. Next up, The Big Short, released in 2015. Written and directed by Adam McKay. In 2006 and 2007, a group of investors bet against the U.S. mortgage market. In their research, they discover how flawed and corrupt the market is. I think Adam McKay is such a talented director. And a lot of people before this advice came out, I don't think they were aware of it because he had just made, you know, comedies with Will Ferrell, like Talladega Nights and the other guys, which he also put in a lot of financial scrutiny in as well. But he's incredibly talented. He shoots with film. His vice in, in this film are, are really beautiful films. And uh, you can see that he is an extremely smart person. And he tries to talk tackle complex themes and put them into movies that audiences can understand and also be entertained by, which I think this movie does. And Adam McKay actually got his start on SNL. And he was an SNL writer. And he and Will Ferrell met on SNL. And they both began a collaboration back then where they wrote the sketches together. So many of Will Ferrell's most famous characters and sketches from SNL, Adam McKay helped create, which is why they have had this long-standing relationship for so long. Not to mention Will Ferrell and Adam McKay both are the co-founders of Funny or Die. So they've been doing this for decades, basically. Mm -hmm. And this is the first film that solidified Adam McKay as a great director because, like you said, he doesn't need Will Ferrell to make a movie. And he has something important to say as a filmmaker because he's tackling these important topics because what happened in 2008 when the market crashed and we went into this recession is it was horrible it was terrible and no one really understood what happened and a lot of americans lives were were changed for forever and hopefully they've been able to bounce back in the time being but the, the thing with it is it came and went and no one seemed to really care anymore about it no one was talking about it anymore and it's kind of happening again yeah, too. yeah and i think what adam mckay wanted to do with this movie is realize that something really serious happened and it's happening again, which obviously they, they tell you at the end of the film with those those final uh, chirons and those those quotes. And it was a shock for me when it came out and I saw this movie because, I mean, I'm not saying that Adam McKay wasn't already a talented director, like you said. I mean, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, Anchorman, as ridiculous and funny as those movies are, they're really well directed and really yeah. well executed. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful films. And, and like we said earlier, Adam McKay uses a few tools to explain what happened because it's very complicated. And it's very confusing, especially if, if you have no familiarity with the financial sector at all. And so he uses, like we said, he breaks the fourth wall a lot. He uses celebrities to, to explain things to us because it keeps us more engaged. He uses things like the Jenga scene with, with Ryan Gosling. And he'll show us actual tables and graphs at the end credits and stuff. And so he, he makes, it's like he's a teacher to students. And he's like trying to teach us very something very complicated in a dumbed-down way for just an average American to understand. 
and again, like we talked about earlier in the stock market and how they kind of all want to keep it a secret. They don't want all these people to know how it works and operates. The same kind of thing happened here. And this is Adam McKay trying to explain how these loans worked and what happened. And this movie won Best Screenplay Oscar, uh, which it deserved because it's a really well-written script. The cast in this movie is absurd. Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Marissa Tomei, Jeremy Strong, Melissa Leo, Selena Gomez, Karen Gillian, and a cameo from Anthony Bourdain. That's insane. And most of these actors, they're playing real people in an honest way, which is why I think this film... Is, it, it feels more authentic than Wolf of Wall Street because, again, Wolf of Wall Street, great movie, but it's just all roller coaster energy, emotion, and, and we're following this one character. But now we're following basically, we're basically following three storylines of these characters, uh, played by Christian Bale, Steve Carell, and um, uh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, and it's a brilliant way to tell a story because, for example, Jared Bennett, Ryan Gosling's character, he pitches Steve Carell um, his option of buying. And then also Christian Bale, his character Michael Berry, is goes from bank to bank asking for loans in order to buy into the the short bet. And so because of these two characters, we they're pretty much explaining what's happening in their meetings and pitches with the other characters. And so it becomes a situation where it's exposition, but it's also vital to the plot because they're explaining what's happening to us, the audience, while trying to get investments from the other characters. So it's a brilliant way to tell the story. And I think this movie showcases how good of an actor Christian Bale really is and how much of a chameleon he is for even just normal people's lives. And I mean, obviously Ryan Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, high talent guys. But Christian Bale, he's on a stratosphere compared to these dudes. I mean, he just <laughs> so he's takes playing a different sport. He takes his roles so seriously. And he's such a chameleon and like he is Michael Burry in this movie and Michael Burry is a really fascinating character and guy. He's a trained physician, um very stunted social skills. He's a genius analyst and number cruncher and he runs this very successful West Coast hedge fund. And um, he also has a glass eye, which they actually uh, did in post-production. They uh, CGI, yeah. Frame by frame, they went in and made that, that glass eye look like an actual glass eye on on uh, Christian Bale's face. Um, he, he has this habit where he plays the drums, and uh, Christian Bale learned to play the drums in two weeks for this role. And it, it's just a fascinating take. I mean, he doesn't wear suits. He wears uh, uh, shorts and, and sweatshirts. He wears cargo shorts and a T-shirt. And flip-flops. And Christian Bale actually borrowed michael burry's real clothes for this movie he borrowed those cargo shorts in that t-shirt actually belonged to michael burry and they had a meeting and he asked hey can you send me your clothes so i can wear in the film and also michael burry for as wealthy he is like hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth uh he still gets his haircut at supercuts for eight dollars yeah you know what i mean he's just a very fascinating character and christian bale once again he just disappears because you know it's christian bale but it's not just the look it's the behavior it's how he carries himself and how he speaks. And like once again, he proves time and time again that he really is one of the most talented actors of all time. And so Burry, after he finds this terrifying data... He's um, one of the first people to discover the bubble. Yeah, with these, these mortgage bonds, he concocts that idea to short and bet against the housing bond market. Yeah, so he goes from bank to bank asking for loans, and he eventually gathers over a billion dollars worth of loans. And the interesting thing about his character, as well as... 
Um, as the crisis is starting and people are, are thinking they're going to lose all their money and everything and they don't understand what Michael Burry's doing, they're they're screaming at him on the phone to get, give him their money and like all his clients want their money back. They're like, give me my money. I, I want my money right now. And, and what ends up happening is he makes them more money than they could have ever imagined having in their entire lives and it ends up he's he was right and the the great thing about this movie again we're, we're dealing with these characters who we talked about earlier they're they're making a profit off something horrible but dealing with the turmoil that comes with that and the 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 morality of it is yeah. it the right thing to do but what else would you do what would you do if you were in their shoes the, everyone the, would do it the ship's on fire and what what burry did pretty much was he got this loan of over a billion dollars from a few banks and he invested in the short and the value rose and so he sold off the val- on a high value, made a huge profit, and then um, they dropped in value exponentially because of the crisis, and he bought them back. And so over time, those rose again. So ev- so when they rose again after he bought them back, he just kept he pocketed all of that money, and so that's how he earned. Um, he earned like over personally over a hundred million dollars just for himself, and then again his investors they earned well over hundred oh, hundreds of millions. And then Steve Carell, uh, Adam McKay's buddy from Anchorman, uh, I like Lamp. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's he has a, a role of Mark Baum, who's a uh, manager of a f- of a hedge fund, and they get whiff of of what um, Jor- of Ryan Gosling's character Bennett's Jared, doing. yeah, and he wants a piece of the action as well. And basically, he's more of a he he seems like he has high morals and he wants to do it in a way to kind of like screw, it's like a screw the system kind of thing that he's more of an idealist you could say in terms of these hedge fund managers and yeah he actually has like positive morals and his character so he's based off a real person Jared Bennett is a fictional character but he's based off a real person and this guy worked for banks and he 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 saw clues and hints to the bubble happening but no one would believe him and so that's why he went to Mark Baum uh, to partner up in purchasing these uh, credit default swaps to make a profit off of them because he personally didn't have enough money to buy enough. And so that's why he went to Mark Baum because Mark Baum's firm had enough money to be able to buy a sizable fund, a sizable sum of these defaults in order to make a gigantic profit. Yeah, and one of the most powerful scenes for Steve Carell's character, Mark Baum, is at the end when he finally decides to tell his guys to sell. Um, He's going through a lot emotionally because he knows what's going to happen. He knows all these people are going to lose so much money. They're going to lose their houses, their jobs. And he, he understands that they knew it was going to happen. They knew this would happen. And he's about to make a decision to make a ton of money off the loss of everyone else's money. Yeah. And the thing is, everyone everyone's still going to lose their money. So he doesn't have to lose his, he doesn't have to lose any of his money. He can make money. So I think... I think pretty much everyone will make that same decision Again, where this, this is their the, ship's, job. the ship's going down. This is these guys' jobs, and their job is to make as much money as possible, and their job is to exploit weaknesses or try to profit off opportunities, and that's what they do. And that's what, what shorting is, and that's that's what hap- it's kind of happening with uh, the, the situation in Wall Street right now where, um, for example, like GameStop and, and Nokia and AMC where uh, these people on on this Reddit stream – they're shorting these companies and buying into them big time. Short squeeze, short kid. squeezing them, and so that's exactly what happened. And with this movie, where these characters are short squeezing the situation because they know everything's going to collapse, so let's just squeeze it and pull as much money out of it as we can 
right now before it falls down. And now it's it's interesting to see in real life how people are doing this in in a mass massive way as opposed to just Wall Street doing it to companies every day. Yeah. And then I really like Christian. I mean, I really like Brad Pitt's performance in this role too as Ben Rickard. And Rickard is like this former banker and a stockbroker in a way, but he seems to have put that all behind him he's kind of like uh has this hippie mentality he he grows his own food and he's like oh you guys gotta start growing your own food you just have to urinate on your on your soil for a couple <laughs> weeks and then um he's almost like uh, a do-gooder now and he comes back in the game to to help these two characters um played by finn watrock and john magaro also profit off what's about to happen and he kind of just plugs back in for the and he seems he's been out of the game but it's interesting that a character who leaves this kind of industry and then comes back and then even after he succeeds and gets them all this money and this profit after after beating the system you can see kind of like a look of disgust and you can tell why he left it yeah he seems disappointed in himself brad pitt's actually one of the main producers on this film with his plan b productions and uh he's his production company has made a, a ton of great films including a bunch of oscar winners like 12 years a slave and i think he is a He's used his power and celebrity to help get to help great filmmakers get their films made. So he's become a very important producer in Hollywood. I I love how you mentioned earlier this sh- this film shows the irresponsibility of of people on Wall Street. Uh, so for example, when Mark Baum and his firm they go out in the field and they visit those bankers who are selling mortgages, um, and in the more these these young guys who are issuing mortgages to people like. They're bragging about how these these mortgages are, are horrible and they're absolute dog shit and, and they're gonna probably default and they're just they don't care because they're getting a big commission every time they issue one, and you can see uh, Mark Baum and his associates how the look on their on their faces is in disbelief that uh, these people have no idea the repercussions that are this the and the fallout that all of this behavior is gonna cause because this is it happened for decades this built up this kind of irrational crazy behavior of irresponsibility driven by greed that these people had and they didn't couldn't have cared less about uh the little person or the average american all they cared about was profiting as much as they could and things like this happen because of deregulation and the lack of laws in the industry and so obviously people are going to be driven to make as much money as they can and the way they make money is by issuing these mortgages because they get commissions. And if there's no regulation on what the mortgage has to look like, and if you're not regulating who can apply for these mortgages and who can be accepted, then it, it causes this gigantic stratosphere to build up and then eventually collapse. Yeah, everything crashes, and then the main characters literally make boatloads of money, boatloads yeah. of money. And Michael Burry, after battling his clients to not sell them, give them give them their money, makes his clients wealthier than they'd ever imagined. The recession cripples the entire country and other other countries as well, and people lose their homes, their jobs, their lives. It's a, it's an odd emotion for these characters. The only happy ones to seem to be those young investors, those two guys, because I don't think they're old enough or mature enough to understand what just happened. And yes, you got a ton of money, but do you understand how this has affected everybody else? And even Venet, who I look at as sort of like a hitman kind of for money and cash, he seems like the most look he seems most similar to jordan belfort character in a way but mm. obviously way toned down but he, yeah. he's the only one out of all these people that kind of has that vibe and aesthetic too. yeah he has that speech where he's like you smell that it's money <laughs> i smell money i'm here to make money and so it's a great it's a great film detailing what happened through the eyes and perspectives of people who were not involved 
in the cause of the collapse, but they were involved in profiting off the collapse, which are different things, but also, you know, you can't say that they're good people for what they did, but they did what they had to. And I think it was just a brilliant way to tell a story. And I, it, it's important not to have, like, outside voices, like, you didn't hear from anyone who's not in the industry. And to be able to be behind the closed doors of what these situations were like, it was just endlessly fascinating. And I think if there's a weakness to this film, obviously it's, it's hard to understand for like your first time viewing, second time viewing, especially if you have, if you have no familiarity with economics or, or how, how loans work. Or it's how confusing stock stuff. Works. It's pretty confusing yeah. stuff. And I know Adam McKay tries to do his best with the celebrities and like Margot Robbie in the bubble bath and Selena Gomez and Anthony Bourdain. But still, it still is hard to grasp, I think, your first time viewing, even second time viewing. You kind of have to do a little research to really truly understand what happens in in the film and what happened in in real life yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why it happens is because many of us are unawares you know we have no idea what's going on we hardly understand alone itself there's so much fine print there's so many things involved in just taking out a mortgage and when you take out a mortgage you don't know what's going to happen you think that oh i'm working with this bank and they're giving me this mortgage or this loan for me to like start a business or pay for a house but we don't know that this bank is selling that mortgage right behind our backs to a firm and they're making money off of us on top of that and it's just this whole system that has become so uh like a wild wild west in a type of way where no one gets no one gets disciplined everyone makes money and then people like average americans they lose out on it and yeah. it's a corrupt environment and i think that uh if more young people educate themselves and learn more about it, maybe in time things can change forever, but we'll see. It's really all about that and also just electing the right people to make laws because that's how yeah. this happens is the politicians get in there, the wrong politicians, and yeah. they don't regulate and they let this happen. They, yeah. they cause this. A lot of people cause these to happen. Yeah, it's and not just one thing. We, you can guarantee that there's probably going to be something like this happening again pretty soon because they Adam McKay basically teases at the end of the film that there are these new kinds of loans that they change very, the name they just it. basically change the name and so yeah. it's happening again and who knows what's going to happen right now with uh with amc and gme and what what's going on in the stock market right now and i'm sure that, and again there was some more illegal activity over the weekend and so it's a wild time to see what's going on but it's it's kind of fascinating to see how now there's power in this massive amount of wealth coming to people everyday yeah. people online in reddit and now they're getting a taste of this power and they're trying to fight back and it's it's really interesting to watch yeah i think it's because we've always seen that wall street as this this goliath that can never be touched or even scratched and then i think this past week has showed us that uh if enough people get together they can cause a lot of destruction in that industry um because they have the masses as opposed to a very small handful and power so, of the internet yeah power of the internet and so uh, we'll see what happens in the future. It's very, I'm keeping my eye on it. It's very interesting stuff, and I'm so curious to see what happens. AMC to the moon, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, these are these are great films. I think Wall Street is a fascinating place to tell stories. And uh, obviously, it's going to be a lot of villainous characters. But uh, if you have right, the right filmmakers, it's going to be entertaining, educational, and, and a good time as well. Yeah, and Adam McKay, again, he humanizes these characters who we think are always villains because they're not always villains. And they, there are some honest people out there. But thank you so much for tuning into this Wall Street episode. I hope Raiders you guys, if podcast. you're watching on YouTube, I hope you like our suits. Yeah, yeah. We look pretty sharp. I mean, I look real good in the suit. I mean, I'm just going to say that. Yeah, you said that to yourself as you were looking in the mirror 12 times. I mean, have you seen me in a suit? <laughs> <laughs> Go to YouTube to find out. Bye. <laughs>
Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.